Hey everyone, it's Brandon Lee, host of the podcast Escaping Rock Bottom. Um, it's good to be off news this week because it's letting me focus on some artwork. It's letting me uh, travel to Atlanta. I just got back from speaking um, at a huge mental health summit that I'm super excited to to talk more openly about. It's been it was a great it was a great great um, a great time being able to talk to medical professionals who are in the world of recovery to get them to know addiction a little bit better. Um, but I'm really excited about this podcast. Uh, it's really unique how I ended up even meeting this guy, um, and I give him props uh, for how we met because it takes some balls to reach out to somebody who you do not know. Um, so I want to bring in Dylan into the podcast. Dylan, man, it's so good to have you here. Dude, I'm I'm pumped, bro. Um, this means a lot to me. So thank you so much for having me, Brandon. Yeah, I've listened to I've, I've listened to your podcast so much. All right, so this is how we met. Yeah. <laughs> all yeah. of a sudden, um, when I when I came back to Arizona, um, I'm on Instagram all the time because right. I'm I'm all over social media, right. and I keep going like. Why? Who are these guys? Like, I keep getting tagged in like all these podcast episodes, and usually, and I get tagged a lot in people's stuff. And usually, I don't go into my notifications that often. But right. I'm like, wait, not so anonymous podcast. Wait, what is this? And I started clicking. I'm like, dude, a, I love the title of it, not so anonymous podcast, right. because and we can talk about this too. I'm For just sure. of of the belief that anonymity in and of itself. The fact that people have to feel that they have to be anonymous, right. just the anonymity part to me is rooted in shame. Because if there was no shame or stigma around mental health and addiction right. and depression, suicidal ideation, why would anybody ever have to be anonymous? Right. You shouldn't have to fear losing your job because you suffer from mental health. So that was the first thing that got right. me to you guys. I'm like, I love the name Not So Anonymous Podcast. So if you're looking for a podcast to follow and listen to, they speak truth and it's very, very raw and it's very my flow and very my style. So <laughs> Thank you, it's man. appreciated here. Um, and I love the fact that you guys are young in recovery. Yeah. And, and I think that that's so important. It, it is, dude. I think, um, you know, in that podcast was birthed on the bench outside of a meeting, like the meeting after the meeting. And we, that's even kind of our tagline, right? The meeting after the meeting, because I always felt like that's where the rawest, purest, most emotional, honest conversations really took place was that camaraderie and that fellowship. And me and my boys would sit out back and just start talking about the most insane shit, the craziest <laughs> stuff that we did. And we would just start cracking up at each other. And then one day Donnie was just like, dude, I think we should start a podcast. I was like, fuck yeah we should start a podcast we need to record this like i don't know if that's egotistical or not like no, but amazing but it, it was like you said dude that the anonymity thing i'm so grateful that you feel the way that you do and it's i, I mirror that feeling right i i feel the same way and like i told you when i first when we first uh met today man like this is really big for me because you did recover out loud because yeah. you didn't worry about your anonymity you were the first example i ever had of somebody recovering out loud and i heard it Two years ago in 2019, yeah. when I was at pretty much the lowest I, w I had been in my addiction. So to fast forward two years to be sitting here with you, the first example <laughs> I ever had at Recovering Out Loud, recording a recovery podcast, dude, it's mind blowing to me. That's so, that's right. And so he, it's crazy because I was even shocked that I was on Holmberg's Morning Sickness because because right. that's the that's the moment you're you're speaking correct of because i always looked at i'm like i know that crowd and the crazy <laughs> thing is a lot of them now listen to this podcast so a lot that's of them are going to be listening dude. right now but here's a crazy thing i was like when holmberg reached out 
and his producers reached out about having me on to talk about my my book and my story. I was like, wait a second. Like, y'all are like the most hetero audience <laughs> ever. I'm like, you got a bunch of hetero guys and they're rockers and they're going to listen to a gay dude talking about <laughs> meth addiction and sex addiction. Right. I'm like, that is not going to go over well. <laughs> and so Holmberg had me on and I'm sitting there just kind of shooting the shit. And I love Holmberg. He texts me during right. newscasts and gives me shit all the time. Um and and that's really cool but that was an example for me yeah. now that i look back and listen he just you know they always say if you can just reach one person Dude. that's all that matters and somebody told me they're like b who cares if 99% of the people hate your story on homeberg and they push back they're like you can have that one person and i'm glad i stepped out of that comfort zone that fear <laughs> right because i'm stoked that you were listening that day dude it it made a I didn't realize it then. This is kind of like a seeds planted type moment. I yeah. didn't realize it then, but it had a huge impact on me. And it goes right back to what we're doing now with the Not So Anonymous podcast, me and my buddies, you know, um, just putting our stories out there and being honest. And the amount of people that come out and just say, hey, thank you so much. You guys got me through the holidays. Hey, thank you so much. This episode really got me, kept me clean today. It's I can't even describe how big it feels and how I can take whatever stuff that I went through and help the next person along. Dude, I'm with that all day, bro. I love that you guys, that you're speaking out loud too. And here's the thing. When I first got sober and I was out of the hospital, the very first AA meeting I went to was actually in Hollywood, California. And so the first taste of that first AA meeting, it was crazy. The reason why I came back is because, and I'm grateful that was my first meeting because many of the meetings I proceeded after that when I moved to Atlanta, Georgia, like if that had been my first meeting, I don't know if I would have been back. And the reason why I say that is because when I was in that Hollywood meeting, I saw dudes that looked like you and I saw guys that looked like me. And I was like, dude, like I think I would hang out with some of these dudes who uh, they look like I would go partying with, but they're sober and they're smiling. And so I needed that. And I know what you guys are doing. It's why I'm a huge fan of you guys and your podcast is because so many young people in recovery, ages 18 to 30, they need to see guys like they don't need to see old timers you know, they're not good. Dang, not, you're already calling yourself I mean, an, you're like an old dude. Oh, I feel like I'm an old dude. <laughs> but like they need to see guys like you, yeah. like skaters and surfers and just like guys that are just kind of hanging out because that lets them know that they're not alone and that there's other dudes like them that they can relate to. Dude, absolutely. So the people I don't, this might sound horrible, the people I prefer to sponsor, but I actually do. I really enjoy sponsoring younger dudes, right? I really, so a couple of my sponsees, 19 and 20 years old. I'm like, super young, super young, right? Well, I mean, fentanyl is getting younger and younger. I know, you know, it's hitting the streets. It's getting younger and younger. I see these kids coming in and it's amazing. First of all, props to come in at 19, 20 years old, because there's no fucking way you're telling me I got a problem at 19, 20 years old. There's no way. Right. So, you know, to be able to work with them, man. And one of the conversations I had last night, um, Donnie actually was on the show with us. One of his sponsees hit one year of sobriety. He was out of town. Uh, Donnie was out of the country at the time. So I took him and one of my sponsees and Jordan came along with us and uh, celebrated his one year. And I told him, I said, you know what? Because my sponsee and I were having a, uh, a conversation about this. And I just told him, I was like, dude, 
I'm just showing you how to be sober. Yeah. Like, that's it, dude. Like, we don't have to go get fucked up anymore. Yeah. Like, we can have a great time. Dude, we went, like, bowling and, like, shot some hoops and played pool and, like, had an amazing time, right? And the laugh was real. The laugh was genuine. For and it's one sure. that I can remember and, like, genuinely feel like that belly laugh. Yes. That goosebump. Like, um, I, stop. You're making me. I'm about to have a six-pack laugh. Yeah. Dude, that's real, man. Because, wait a second. It's so crazy you say that because the first time that I had my first belly aching laugh was sober. Like, I'm I'm sure I did it as a kid, but like I'm talking belly aching laugh was when I was sober because right. I never laugh like that in my active using. Yeah. Ever. It's dark. It's so dark. All right. So um, Dylan, take me back to what did childhood look like for you? Where were you born and raised? I was born right here in Phoenix, Arizona, man. More specifically the Maryville area, yeah. um, which is not the greatest area in Phoenix. Um, I was born to two teenage parents. Um I like to always preface anything I say about my childhood um, by saying I don't believe I had a bad childhood. Okay. I believe my parents loved me incredibly. I always felt very loved. And regardless of what we were, what we are, there was always a lot of love in my house. Yeah. Um, I would describe my childhood at times as inappropriate. Okay. Um, but I want to say that my dad gave me a far better childhood in a far better upbringing than he ever received, right? So we are making progress generation to generation. I, I do believe that. Um, but it was a lot of partying. It was, you know, my parents were young, teenagers. Con we didn't have a lot of money. So Phoenix Suns games, that was the number one source of entertainment. I'm not sure when this will air, but props <laughs> to the Phoenix Suns making the NBA finals. Um, but um, and, and sneaking into concerts, parties at the house, Suns game, sneaking into concerts, that was really big for us. So right off the bat, you know, I seen what it looked like to to party and to get let loose and all that type of stuff um and i do want to preface anything i say about the partying as well but i do believe that i was just I, i'm an addict right yeah. like i'm a drug i think i would be here probably regardless yeah um but this definitely helped speed up the process if that makes sense i don't know yeah um so that was a lot of what it was man you know like uh, a lot of freedom a lot of freedom I, I really only had one rule and my dad said dylan straight a's in school Get straight A's in school, and I pretty much had free reign to do whatever I, I wanted, you know? So yeah, That's that work hard, play hard mentality yes. instilled in you at a very young age. I was the same way. As Absolutely. long as I got good grades and did well in soccer, honestly, I had no curfew. I could go out and do whatever I wanted right. to do. Well, I had, so I had, so I was seven years old and a buddy of mine who was 13 years old at the time lived across the street and my parents trusted this kid with my life. Like literally, yeah. <laughs> actually trusted this kid with my life. Um you know, and as long as I had those grades, you know, and what I came to realize was at a very young age, that was my first example of social acceptability equaling personal recovery, mm. meaning that if my grades are good, you can't tell me nothing Exactly. because I have straight A's. That means I can handle my stuff. That means I could act as wild as I want, do whatever I want with my hair, yep. do this, whatever, but I got straight A's so you can't tell me anything, Exactly. you know, and I don't, a lot of it was a blast. A lot of it, you know, like I said, that 13 year old homie that i had across the street i was seven years old i got to go to the warp tour and the warp tour is like now i know what the warp right tour exactly is. it's a huge like yeah. rock festival concert almost i got to go there by myself at seven years old ended up getting separated from my friends i'm spending the day at seven years old by myself at the warp tour crowd surfing i'm all of like i don't even 50 60 pounds so yeah. they're just throwing me <laughs> you know i'm in the mosh pit like i'm having one of the times of my life but what i realize now is a lot of my character defects that would one day try to kill me kept me alive during those times too. Mm. the ego, the control, all the, you know, I had to have a pretty big ego at that, even at that age to say, you know what, dude, I'm a badass. I yeah. can handle this situation. Like this is a lot of people, but I'm good. 
I can control it. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's interesting. Let me ask you this question because I am a huge believer that uh, trauma is the gateway to leading somebody down the road of addiction. So right. I think we're all predisposed, right? right. I, I truly think that some of us are just coming to this world. Right. We're kind of wired naturally, but it's a traumatic event that triggers that, right? That sends us down that road. Um, because I know friends of mine who are like, Brandon, I've never even gone close to a drug because I know if I try it, I have such an addictive personality. Right. And to that person, I would say, God, they're probably predisposed too. They just never had a life-altering traumatic event that sent them down that way. Ooh, yeah. So I wanted to ask you this because... Even being born into this world by teenage parents, those first zero to five years are so formative in that childhood and that, you know, what may have been traumatic to me may not be traumatic to you. So what I want to ask you this is that do you think just growing up in kind of that environment, looking back, do you see that as a, any sort of childhood trauma? I, so that maybe sent you off at such a young age to start abusing drugs. What I think I've seen a lot of and this is stuff that it, it it's tough to describe, but I've seen a lot of pain. Mm. I've seen a lot of pain. So my uncle, my dad's little brother, died tragically at 15 years old. And I was one or two years old at the time. What I didn't realize is, and what I believe at least today, is that that death would shape my upbringing, my family to this very day. Yeah. Um, my dad took it very, very tough. Mm. Um, my grandmother took it very, very tough. Um, and there was a lot of numbing that yeah. took place. Um, my mom is a teenage mother now, for the most part, with me by herself. And she told me um, that she has vivid memories of staring at me. And we're just making eye contact. And she said it felt like you knew I was in pain and that you did your best to just help me through that pain. So I think I seen a lot of pain growing up um, yeah. and I seen what it looked like to numb pain. I didn't really see what it looked like to handle emotions and feel emotions properly uh, invalidate my experience invalidate my traumas, which I am a firm believer in. My sponsor always tells me, Dylan, don't disrespect your emotions. Yeah. Um, so I think if anything, that was especially those zero to five years, I'd say that that's a lot of what went down. Yeah, because those are, are, are truly the most formative and really kind of map out how we're going to be for the rest of our lives. And I just think that, you know, for the most part, you know, born to teenage parents, they're not going to have the life experiences to know exactly what to give a zero to five year old as far as love and affection and that kind of attention. Right. If at age seven, you're already rocking out right, right, the war right, tour, right. you know, which is kind of crazy. Um, what, how long did it take you for you to hit like, and what did that rock bottom look like? Cause I know one of your stories that is just so painful to hear, but at the same time, knowing where you're at today, at least like warms my heart, the way I see you acting with your child, your daughter. So take me back to like, what did that rock bottom for you really, really look like? Dude, it was a spiritual rock bottom. You know, yeah. it, it really was because the homeless, all that type of stuff, like giving away my house, the money, whatever it may be, like it materially, that never made a difference, right? Like it almost helped me out. It did help me out when I finally had no excuse, right? Like I'd got like can't afford the house, can't afford the bills, you know, I can't afford this, can't afford that, right? So I think far too often people get caught up in the material aspect of rock bottom. Well, I'm not homeless. So that means I'm doing just fine type deal. Mine was absolutely a spiritual rock bottom, yeah. you know, and 
my do- my wife and I were going through the process of adopting my daughter. Okay, and my daughter's biological parents were active addicts as well at the time. In my mind, this is another situation of social acceptability equaling personal recovery. Look how good I'm doing. I'm I'm adopting this baby. I'm saving this kid. Right. I'm saving her. Right. So all of you can now look at the Facebook life and you can check the updates on the adoption status and say, man, Dylan's a great guy. Dylan's got it all together. You know, and that's what I wanted. Right. I wanted that shield of protection. I wanted that mask on. I didn't want anybody to see me for who I really was. By the time the adoption was finalized, man, I'm a full blown. I'm, I'm a fentanyl addict. All right. I've my 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 drug use has progressed to fentanyl. And right. that is now my drug of choice. I got my ass kicked quicker than I had ever imagined. Like it was it, it got really dark, really bad. And I just felt the only way out was suicide. You know, I had tried to get clean on my own, mind you, right? I wasn't really willing to accept help because yeah. I'm still a badass, right? Yeah. I can still do this on my own. So time after time again, yeah. I'm sweating it out on the couch and my wife's wrapping hot towels around my legs and trying to, you know, keep me comfortable. But there's nothing you can really do during an opiate, with, uh, an opiate withdrawal. And, uh, you know, so I'm time and time again, man. And it finally got to the point where like, you know, this just isn't going to work. The only way out is to end my life. And I came up with this plan to end my life in Prescott, Arizona. Mm. I was going to leave a letter for all of my family. I was going to write a letter to my wife and I was going to write a letter to my daughter explaining to her that daddy loves you so much. I'm so sorry. I can't be here to watch you grow up. Mm. And I was going to try to write down the talks that I think I would have had with her during different stages of her life, you know, and just thinking about it now, it's, it's kind of like shaking me up a little bit um, that I thought that was really the only way out. Uh, or the best thing, you know, I, I truly believed in my mind that was going to be the best thing. So that was my plan. And there's one night, man, and this night is just burning my heart. It, it really is. I was sitting there in my daughter's bedroom, actually. And I was sitting there and my wife spotted something. I don't know what she spotted, but she spotted, I think, as vulnerable as I've ever been. I, I don't know what she spotted, but she came up and she looks at me and she asked me the exact same question that she asked me so many times before the same question that i said no to so many times before because i had a reason every time she looks at me and says dylan are you finally ready to get some help are you ready to go to treatment i said yeah i'm Mm. ready to go because i was tired man and i figured you know what maybe i can try this before i end my life to see if this might work you know and she says great I'm sending you to Prescott, Arizona to go to treatment. Wow. So on July 17th, did my last fatty wop, <laughs> as I call yeah. him, and I drove up to Prescott, Arizona, not to end my life, to be, but to begin my life. Yeah. And on July 18th, 2019, man, I consider myself to be reborn. I truly feel like I was reborn because my active addiction life and my recovery life feel like two different lives. They really do. And I remember when I was in there, man, even... Even going through my detox, I was still hanging on to the idea that I was different, right? I was still hanging on to the idea that I just stubbed my toe. Yeah, I'm not really you guys. I, I just have a drug problem. If I could just get rid of the drugs, I'll be fine. You know, a couple weeks, two, three weeks, this part, the time is a little foggy. Um, but a couple weeks or so, I still hadn't been able to talk to my daughter. I finally work up the strength. My wife says, hey, do you want to talk to her? I said, you know what? Yeah, let's, let's try it. Let's try it. Because I think, I think I'm ready to talk to her. The very first thing she says to me, and she's three years old at this time, is, Daddy, are you finally coming home tonight? Oh. 
broke me. And I said, baby, I'm so sorry. Daddy's got a little while longer. I can't come home tonight. I'll be back as soon as I can. I still have some more work to do. We told my daughter I was up there working, which I was. Right. <laughs> an important Working work. on being a better dad. <laughs> right. Yeah. Absolutely. And I'm so grateful for that phone call mm. because that was that broke me moment. And it was at that moment that I felt this overwhelming acceptance come over me. Mm. And I understood I was right where I needed to be. I needed you guys. And I had a shot, man. I had a shot, you know, it was like the light switch came on. And when I accepted that, I was able to finally begin the recovery process. You know, that's such a, it's such a powerful story because, um, you know, I, I, I follow you on social media and I just, I love seeing you like with your daughter and how happy you are with, you know, oh, with man. your wife and, you know, can truly, you know, sometimes you can look at a picture and you know if somebody is fake smiling and if you know if somebody is like fake happy or if it's a forced picture. But there's something about, um, you know, you and your wife and your kid, and, you know, your recent vacation to Hawaii oh, and, you know, being able to see that. And, you know, I just look at that and I'm like, God, you know, for anybody out there who feels hopeless, uh, especially when it comes to opiate recovery, which is different than alcoholism, it's just total different animal. Um that like, you know, look at Dylan, you know, look at you and be able to see that it doesn't take long to start seeing and feeling the gifts of recovery. And I say feeling too, because you start to feel again, you know, and you start to care about others, but also caring about yourself, which is about caring about others. Because Dylan, you know, if you don't take care of you, you're not going to be a good dad, you know, to, to your daughter and you're not going to be a good husband, you know, to your wife. And, you know, I noticed that you are, I talk more about the spiritual aspect of how I brought the spirituality aspect back into my recovery, which right. has been huge recently. Totally. Um, talk to me a little bit about how faith is part of your, you know, program, your Did, plan of recovery. It, you know, it's funny, man. You know, because a lot of people fear that God part. You know, totally. a lot of drug addicts. Totally. You know, I used to say "f you" to God, right? Uh, because I was I hanging out with people who worship Satan. So, like, right. meth brought out the devil in me, right? Um, and so, which it seems to do. It just, like, it's just insane, man. <laughs> right. It's just like I can, my mind can go real, real, real dark, <laughs> like scary dark. But I'm not a religious person, right. um, but I'm definitely a spiritual person. Right. And just where does faith or spirituality kind of come into your recovery? Because I think it's crucial in order to be recovered i do too i really do too and i want to say that i'm not a religious person at all actually either yeah um i think religion is probably the worst thing to ever happen to god yeah um so i, I do want to make that you know i do kind of want to go on record with that yeah. as well um i you know and, and and this is kind of a conversation that i've had even with my like my own my own buddies you know my my, my friends about what role like the church has played in my recovery and i always tell everyone like i I'm very fortunate to be at a very, very, I would almost say progressive church. Yeah. You know, um, they recently played my story on the big screen for thousands of people. Yeah. You know, the pastors listen to my podcast and anyone who's listening to my podcast will probably That's say, <laughs> right, exactly. And they're yeah. fans of it, you know? Yeah. So I, I got really, really blessed. My, my sponsor is actually a, a pastor at that church. Um, so he's in recovery, face tattoos, given weekend service, you know, like, <laughs> so it, it was like you said earlier, right? When you went to that Hollywood meeting, you've seen people and you're like, yo, I could vibe with this. Yes. I felt the same way, right? Yeah. I felt the same way. Um, 
my wife started going to this church five years ago mm. and she was like dylan come along and i was the same thing fuck that yeah nah, dude like i don't want to go to damn church you know yeah. like i don't want to go i don't want to go i don't want to go but i always felt this nagging calling from god okay and i always told him the same thing bro leave me alone like there's a room full of people on sundays who clearly want your help there's a room full of people at these meetings who keep talking about you who clearly want your help right i don't want your help right now leave me alone and he let me he let me destroy myself God let me destroy myself. And thank you. Thank you. Yeah. You know, because I needed that. You know, so I started going, my first ever meeting actually was at something called Celebrate Recovery. All right. And it's a twice it's a Christ Center 12 step meeting. And I walk in there and I'm just shattered, man. I'm broken, you know, but I'm not broken enough to admit complete defeat yet. Mm. So what does that mean? I still got a couple years of kicking my ass before I'm ready to get it going. Totally. But seed planted, just the same way that you Going on Holmberg's show, that was a seed planted for me, man. So I didn't realize it, but all these seeds are being planted. I go there and I start, you know, I meet my sponsor, all that type of stuff. Um, but again, man, I'm in this, I'm in the, I'm in the room during service nodding out. My wife's waking me up, you know, I'm sitting there and I can't get it together. I'm, uh, you know, I cannot get it together when I come back from treatment, man. And then just how all of it's played out. And, and again, this is really not to make it about the church. Um, I'm blessed with the church I go to, but it's more of a personal relationship that I have the same way you have a personal relationship yeah. with your higher power. Right. Because I was told about God. Yeah. Most of what I was told was not correct. Right. Because I had, and I hadn't developed my own personal relationship. I hadn't found out what God's voice sounded like yet. Right. You know? So I think that's more important than anything. Cause when people tell me about that, people say, Oh, ah, man, the God thing. I just don't like church. I'm like, dude, who said anything about church? church. What exp exactly what part of the church is God? Is it the chairs? Is it the wall? Is it the man speaking? Right? Like, because man does a lot of damage to God's name. Right? Like I, I think that we can do a lot of damage to God's name. Right. Yeah. Worshiping I man. Agreed. Because, you know, listen, I grew up Catholic and right. I, you know, I, I, my parents never went to church, but I got dropped off at church, which <laughs> still fucking baffles me. But now I look back and I'm like, the only reason my parents were dropping me off to CCD every Wednesday and I had to get first Holy Communion and they get confirmed. <laughs> I'm like, I look back and I'm like, my parents didn't even go to church. Like, <laughs> what was I being sent there for? Oh, the public image of pressures of parents being like, we're a good parent. See, we send our kid to church. Right. Little did they know. I knew that I was gay man. and they just did so much damage to me, I believe you know, it, because back, I mean, you know, look at the Catholic church even today. They still don't even recognize gay marriage. They still think being gay is a sin. Right. I'm like, yeah, well imagine the damage that did to a poor kid who was born fucking gay. I didn't have no damn choice. And here I am like being told every day, I'm being reminded every day of Catholic school, you're burning in hell. There's something wrong with you. There's something not right about you. Right. You're making a bad, like that feeling as a child is uh, that in and of itself. Aside from the other traumas I suffered, right. that in and of itself is traumatic and will make me feel uncomfortable. And how do I feel more comfortable? Drugs or alcohol. Um, here's my thought on spirituality. Um, because I've really found it in the last six months. And I have yeah, some man. time sober. Okay, so like I tell people all the time, if it takes you a little time to find that spiritual connection in your life, you can get sober, but eventually you're going to need to add that element. Um, you know, and I started working. Now, he is a certified trauma therapist, so right. I am going to put that out there. Um, but I started um, doing shamanism. Yeah, man. And I started doing shamanism back in January. And, and for those listening right now, you're like, what is shamanism? If I could have every treatment center include shamanism as part of what, just another modality. Mm -hmm. uh, because what it does, similar to 
to EMDR therapy is that we do deep breath work for about 20 minutes and I drop in, gets you past the frontal lobe and gets you back to the lower part of your brain where all that trauma is stored. It's the same journey that people do with ayahuasca. So Mm -hmm. it just gets them past the frontal lobe, the ayahuasca in order for them to, to get back here. This is what I believe. Dylan, I believe that we choose our parents before we enter this world. I believe that we choose who our parents are going to be and that we sign a contract and that we come into this life because I've had three spiritual healers tell me in the past year, because that's how broke I got in January. I've had three spiritual healers tell me, Brandon, they looked at me and they're like, you, they pause almost. And they're like, you signed up for a very difficult life. But I signed up for that to be where I'm at today for the purpose of healing, for the purpose of giving hope to those who are suffering. Had I not gone through that, had I not chosen my parents for the lessons that they taught me, good or bad, had I not signed up for the life and the traumas that I suffered to survive them, to get to where I'm at today, I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing today. I wouldn't be touching lives the way I'm hopefully touching people's lives today. I wouldn't be here and having the life I have today, which is why I tell people, even with relapse, relapse can be the biggest blessing for someone because it forces you down to your raw core in order to get you closer to your higher power and your spiritual connection. Relapse can actually transform somebody and shoot them off into the best life they've ever thought imaginable compared to somebody who's got 30 freaking years and they're white knuckling it, right? Right. They just haven't picked up a drink or anything, which is why I always go back to someone with five years and they relapse or someone with two years and they relapse and they're back. I look at them and they can have their life together and offer more to somebody than somebody with 30 years. Totally. You know, so my, I just look at life as that instead of looking at woe is me and poor was me and look at me and all the traumas I suffered, it's like, no, I signed up for all that before I even entered this life. And yeah, it was hard and it was painful and it hurt, but I survived it, healed from it, I'm on the other side of it, and now grateful for every traumatic experience that I went through because it's giving me the purpose that I'm living today. And Dylan, I wouldn't want any other fucking life. Hell yeah, dude. Despite all, I wouldn't. Act, I wouldn't want to be anybody else. I wouldn't want to be straight. I, w- you know, I wouldn't want to not have been in a coma and and been near death so many times. I survived it. I'm grateful for it, and now I can go and share it. It's beautiful, and that's my spiritual connection. That's my spirituality, but it takes that. It takes that connection to have that in order to have what you and I now have. Right. And I think for some people, that's the element that's missing. I think that is the most important element missing when we're looking for happy, joyous, and free. In my opinion, that's that's what I believe, right? Because there's times where I'm just sober and I'm fucking miserable and sober, totally. right? And I have a totally. I have a shelf life on how long I will do sober, miserable, right? Because I'm yeah. I, I'm not fucking interested, right? Yeah. And that's usually when I'm disconnected from God. That's that's really what it boils down to you know and i i i I, dude the way you put that i mean that's a trip right like i never really thought about that like i chose my parents but i i totally agree i'm so grateful for the hardships dude i'm so grateful for the traumatic experiences i'm so grateful i say it all the time i was like dude you know i was joking with goomer who's on the show yeah 
And I told him, and this is when we were doing a Christmas drive, a toy drive, and we got a bunch of uh, toys together um, for for parents and kids who yeah. wouldn't have had a Christmas um, otherwise. And we got a bunch of toys together, and I looked at him, and I said, dude, isn't it crazy that some kid's going to wake up Christmas morning and have a present to open because we did fentanyl? <laughs> like, yeah. You know, like, it sounds, that's like an oversimplization, but that, like... That's really what happened, right? Yeah. Like we got fucked up, right? Like yep. we went down these crazy paths, but instead of woe is me, instead of like poor me, the world's against me, yada yada yada, we flipped that shit. Yes. And we're like, dude, you know what? Fuck that. Yep. I'm gonna like I have one life right now. And I'm going to live it in a manner that I am going to be spiritually fulfilled, right? Because I've had the money, I've had the car, I've had the job, I've had all the I have the family, all that. Cool, great. I yeah. was fucking miserable. Yep. That's not what keeps me clean, man. This shit right here yeah. keeps me clean, dude. Like, that's what does it for me, bro. Helping out helping out the next person who's sick and suffering. I'm going to H&I tonight after we record this, right? Yeah. Like, that's what does it for me. When I get a message saying, Dylan, thank you so much. I got 30 days. Yep. That's what does it for me. 100%. Your guys' podcast got me through the fucking holidays. That's what does it for me. Yep. Not a fucking... And that's like spiritual shit. That is totally. It is because I think for, you know, for so many of us, we put everything into possessions and what do I own? But again, that just goes back to our character defects of wanting to put on a front, like put on a shiny object shell. Totally. So if you're investing so much in those material possessions, wanting to make you feel better about who you are, you're essentially not being your authentic self. Right. I mean, that's just the root truth of it right you can be authentic and still have material possessions totally nothing wrong with it but it's how you um it's really how you possess them and the value that you put into them and how you show it absolutely you know because i am very grateful for the life that i have i'm grateful for the career that i have and that's all a blessing but at the same time i also know i loved when you said you hit a spiritual rock bottom right. that got you to that got you into recovery because I still had a job. I still had a car. I had a roof over my head. And I, did, I, I didn't get fired, but I was still in a coma. It was that I was so broken. I tell people I was broken spiritually. That's what got me into recovery. Because I've had people in recovery be like, yo, B, if I still had a job, a roof over my head, a car to drive, and you know, a, a good paying job, I would still be out there. And money in the bank, I'd still be using until all that. So we all travel like different roads back here to recovery. I want to ask you this. How in your mind do we really begin to kind of break through and end the stigma around mental health, around suicidal ideation um, as somebody who, who was suicidal as part of your story? How do, we, how do we do that as a community to help break that stigma? I mean, I have some thoughts and beliefs, but what are yours? Yeah, I, you know, it, it's... I, I think there's no, it's a tough one because it, it's big. It really is big. But I think it really does start with just conversations like this. Yeah. Seeing my local news anchor be so open about it, right? Be so open about what you're going through and still rise to the top. Right. That's fucking dope to me. Right. Like, I love that, dude. Like, even your journey to becoming like a top news anchor, right? Right. Like, do fucking with your ears yeah. and your eyebrows the, the surgeries, and all yeah. of the different like body dysmorphia issues that you went. I read the book, right? Yeah. Like the all of these issues that body, you went yeah. to, like eventually led you to be like, you know what? Nah, dude, like I'm this tattooed gay drug addict and I'm going to take over your fucking news station. Yeah. Like crazy. that stokes me out, dude, because now 
we are normalizing and we're no longer saying, oh, you know what, though? That Brandon, I don't know. No, he's the best man for the fucking job, right? That's period, right? And if we can start normalizing these situations, yeah. that I think if most people seen how so successful true. people are who deal with these type of issues, and if these successful people, and not even necessarily successful like in a monetary type situation, no, no, just no. like in a life situation, Correct. right? If they started speaking out and saying, you know what, this is what I went through. Yep. This is what I went through. This is what I've overcome. This is what I work on. This is what I struggle with. Yeah. Right? This is what I struggle with. <laughs> I think we can start normalizing the conversation. That's so beautifully said, Dylan, because, and, and I love the fact that you use normalizing because I want to normalize mental health. Like suicidal ideation and depression should be normalized and normalized not the fact that we're not going to do anything about it, Correct. but just accepting that it's here. It's, it touches it's every real. facet of our lives and it's real. Okay, so here's what I love about that. And I've never thought about this until you just said this. So <laughs> it is crazy because this is going to be really good for me when I, when I go out and even speak and talk about how we end the stigma. So you talk about normalization. And I'm thinking to myself, Dylan's onto something right there. Because when I took this job in Arizona... Now, granted, I always like to say this. I am so grateful for Arizona's family. <laughs> I am so grateful for all of my bosses who do listen, by the right, way, right. our sales executive right. listens. What's up, Hi, dude? Christy. <laughs> um, so <laughs> people at my work listen. And so I just want to say thank you uh, for always supporting me and always like just giving me a platform. Okay. Now that being said, right. now that being thank said, you, Chrissy. thank right. you, Chrissy. Yeah, was yeah. Right. Thank Every you, Chrissy. one of them over there, right. they all listen to watch. Now that being said, they would not allow me to do what I'm doing if they did not see value in for it. They're still a corporation. So they see an upside. I'm still grateful for it. But here's the thing. When I came to Arizona eight years ago, Dylan, and I was in the interview process, anybody can Google search me. I'm Obviously covered in tattoos, fully sleeved, body wrap, everything. That is very atypical of a news anchor, right? It's very, very out of the box, not stereotypical of what society expects from a news anchor. When I interviewed, they told me, and I decided to take the job and accept it. They said, but Brandon, when you come here, you can't show your tattoos on TV. You can't ruin your credibility. It's not our brand, Arizona's family. It doesn't fit our brand, da, 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 da. Can't show them. Well, guess what, Dylan? It's like 115 degrees outside. <laughs> yes, and they were sending me at that time, like I would have to go report on a story at four in the afternoon, one of the hottest parts of the day. And what is Brandon doing? Brandon's standing there fully dress shirt down to my wrist. Viewers started to email in being like, yo, why is this guy wearing full sleeves? It's 115 out. It looks bizarre and it looks weird. <laughs> Come eight years later, my bosses can care less if my tattoos show on TV. I've done interviews in a t-shirt, you know, when, when it's fitting. They don't care anymore. Why? Because it's normalized. How did I help normalize it? Because over the course of several years, I did not show my tattoos, but guess what? Corporate executives in the news world, a lot of them squares, started to get to know the real Brandon. They started just to naturally get to know me. And then they got to love me. And then they got to accept me. And now they don't even see the tattoos. And they don't see the tattoos as something negative. So you talk about normalizing, how did I get there to that point? Because people are like, dude, how are you a tatted news anchor? Da, 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 da. How do we get there? Because I got they got to know the real Brandon. Correct. They got to know the good, the, the good guy, like the, the good Brandon. Right. And suddenly I changed their perception of what a tatted up, sleeved, body wrapped guy is. Right? 
That's how I think we do it with mental health. Totally. Right? As you said, normalize it. We normalize it by speaking us, by putting a face to addiction, which is why I'm not for the anonymity thing, because I just feel in order for us to normalize mental health, in order for us to save more lives, we got to break through the anonymity part of it. But the only way we do that is by taking a risk and saying, totally. hey, boss, hey, my name's so-and-so. I, I'm, a, I'm a recovered addict. Right. This, is, this is who I am. That was my story, but this is who I am today. The more of us who do that, the easier it is for that person who is sitting with a great job at some corporate company but is still hitting the bottle or they're still doing hardcore drugs. They're trying to figure a way out, but they're not going to get help because they're afraid they're going to lose that job right. if their executives find out they're an addict. Right. Which is insane anyway. Right. Because any one of us who's ever dealt with that, like anything I put in front of my recovery type shit, I will yeah. eventually lose. Like it, it's so true, you know, and I love the way you put it too. And one of the things I want to say too is that shit wasn't just like given to you, right? Like you normalized it because you showed up and you did the job and you acted appropriately, right? right like you represented sure. yourself right. in a positive way, in a correct way, right? And I think that's really important as well. It's not to just necessarily be so brash, like, hey, you know what? Fuck you. I'm a drug addict, yada, yada. Like this is, you know, if you like, no, like I'm going to act and I'm going to show you that I'm a human being and that I just struggle like a normal person. And I'm just open to talking about my struggles. But you're going to see that I'm actually like a good dude. You know, and you don't have to worry about your purse around me or anything like that. And I think that's really important as well. You know, is like just showing like, dude, no, I'm just a human. Like I'm a human who feels things. I really feel things, you know, and it's that normalizing, that normalizing, that business aspect of it, even right there. Right. Because it's not just enough to be a tatted up news anchor. You had to be a news anchor that put a book out about everything. Right. Right. So that's awesome, though. Right. Yeah. Because even with my real estate stuff. People weren't knocking on my door when they found out I got out of rehab to buy a house from me, no. right? They weren't. And one of the things that I understood going into this and running the Not So Anonymous podcast with my buddies is there's going to be some people who still just don't get it. Yeah. They're still going to say like, oh, good for you. I'm glad you got help. Little drug addict. You know, yeah. they're still going to be that. And I, I accept that for now, right? right? For now. Because we're going to work on that. Yeah. And we're going to work towards a solution. And again, normalizing it. I just, you mentioned the Hawaii trip earlier, right? Yeah. I sat next to a guy, man. And you ever have those moments where just like God brings people in and out of your life? Even if it's for two hours, it's 100%. like that, that person served their purpose in 100%, your life. 100%. Yeah. Like I had this amazing conversation, man. And I'm so, I had one of those just like outbursts of honesty moments. Um, the guy next to me, I got the talker on the airplane, you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, but I'm actually really enjoyed this conversation oh I had God, with this guy. Oh my God, goosebumps because that just, I'm going to share something that just happened with a guy I sat next to on the airplane. Hell yeah, and dude. purpose. Go ahead. All right, cool. So he sits next to me, you know, and at first I'm like, oh God, you know, it's a six hour flight and I got the guy who likes to talk. Like, he he leans over and says, is that your daughter? I was like, yeah, man, you know, it's my daughter and it's my wife and that's awesome man she's beautiful thank you bro you know thank you you know and he just looks at me and says all that partying stuff's overrated and i looked at him i said you say partying and he goes yeah mind you i hadn't said a damn thing about partying up yeah. to this point right like, he just looked at me and was like i know this guy's got a problem right <laughs> he looks and i just had that outburst of honesty i was like oh yeah dude i'm a recovering drug addict yeah. I know the partying is overrated yeah. and simultaneously everyone within a two row vicinity of me just 
like kind of looks <laughs> like did he just say that out loud <laughs> so proudly yeah. you know but i was because two years ago i was breaking into my daughter's piggy bank to try yeah. to scrape up money because i was dope sick yeah fast forward i'm taking my wife daughter and my mother-in-law to hawaii, <laughs> to hawaii. dude yeah. it, it happens you know and it's because i put that work in i built a relationship with my higher power right and i established a personal relationship not what other people told me it was but a personal relationship the same way that i believe that you have right a personal relationship and i just Dude, try to keep my nose clean, literally and figuratively, you know, try to keep my nose clean and things just happen, man. Yeah. So that speaking of, so I just got back from Atlanta, Georgia. I flew back on Monday. So this is just a few days ago. Right. I'm on the flight back and this gentleman sits next to me. I'm watching my movie, not saying a word, trying to like just be quiet little Brandon, introvert Brandon on the airplane, like also don't want to get involved in a long conversation. Right, right. My movie ends and I take my headphones off and the guy just goes, um, you were shaking your head a lot during that movie. And I was watching a movie called The, um, the Dissident. It's about a journalist, Jamal Khashoggi, who was murdered. In I want to see that. Okay. I it's seen it. really, really good. It. And it's a documentary. So, of course, as a news journalist, right. like I'm watching it being like, I can't, you know, like, I was mm-hmm. having a natural reaction to parts of the film. And I'm like, I was telling him, I was like, yeah, you know, I'm a journalist. Da, da, da. Dylan, I don't know how the conversation went to this place. And I think he said he was just, his brother died a month ago from a drug overdose. And I, and I said, tell me more. And he goes, well, we grew up really, really poor. And he goes, and my parents did drugs in our trailer. And he goes, and my little brother became my parents. And he goes, I moved out when I was 16 to my girlfriend's house because I didn't want to be around drugs. And he goes, and he started tearing up. And he goes, I just feel overwhelming guilt that I didn't try to help my brother more. And I always say this, Dylan, the only reason why I'm alive is to serve as a portal from my higher power to help others. Full stop. That is my purpose. God done saved my life so many times. He's like, now I'm going to use you for good. (laughs) Okay. I told him, I said, you need to listen to me. What you went through as a child was a traumatic event. And you went into survival mode and you, you, you saved your life at 16 by moving out of a, a, that drug home and moved in with your girlfriends and you've never picked up a drug. But you need to understand this. Your little brother chose to follow your parents' footsteps. He was traumatized as well as a, as a child. We either stand against the way we were raised or we stand for it. We either do the opposite, what you just did, and never touched a drug in your life because you saw what it did, or you stand with it and you become it, and that's what your little brother did. But you need to walk away from this conversation knowing this. The burden of guilt does not rest on your shoulders. Straight up, dude. It rests on your parents. Hand that burden over to them. There is nothing you could have done And your little brother is in heaven right now and he is basically asking you to let go Mm. of the shame and the guilt because 
He made that choice to use, not you. He made that choice. He overdosed and he dies. Your brother does not want you to live with survivor's guilt or carry any guilt about a choice that he made. And he just looked at me, this talker, looked at me, tear comes down his face and goes, I don't know what to say, but thank you. That wasn't me. Dude. Did I sit next to him? Did I? (laughs) I didn't even book that ticket. (laughs) Right, same. The, The conference people booked my ticket. And to have him in that moment... Tell me a month ago his brother died from a drug overdose and he didn't know how to handle it? I hope to God that man is feeling lighter by the message that my higher power used me in order to deliver that totally to him. Did. Because that man and every and the reason why it's relatable for people who listening to this podcast, because a lot of people who listen, Dylan, they listen for hope because they're married or they they have a sibling who's in Same. who's yeah, a drug yeah, addict right. and they don't know what the F to do. Correct. And what I tell those people who are listening or watching is it is not your burden to carry and that the the addict has to get help and they have to want it themselves. And you cannot carry that burden. Like, is there something more I could have done? The answer is no. ah, Dude, it's so tough. It is so tough too because this is the part that I struggle, right? Because I know what it's like on both sides, right? I know what it's like to have family member in addiction. I know what it's like to be in active addiction. And it's so wild you had that experience, bro. And I'm so sorry I jumped in like this. No. But I had to because, oh, that guy I was telling you about on the airplane, dude. Yeah. When I told him that, I said, I'm a drug addict, right? He looks at me. And mind, this is a man on his way to go close a deal in Hawaii that's going to make him a billionaire, right? So we're having these amazing conversations about this dude's like life accomplishments. And I'm genuinely interested, right? He has my attention on what he's done in life and, you know, he's showing me some stuff. And, but when that happened, he goes, really? My brother's got 30 days sober right now. He goes, and then all of a sudden conversation changed. Now it went from a surface level conversation about business to dude, what's up, bro? Like, are you good? Right. And he had this conversation and same thing, dude. Now, all of a sudden, this incredibly private man, you know, with his business dealings and all that type of stuff and starts showing me his phone. This is a voice message from my brother. This is a text message that I sent to my brother. This, Within the span of 10 minutes, I earned this man's trust because I believe that he believed I was being authentic with who I was. Mm. So now I'm making it a safe area for you to be authentic with who you are, Right. That conversation was beautiful. And the same thing, I always say, like, I feel like I'm a part of God's army, right? Like, he picked me up and he was like, yo, man, I need you to go do some work for me. I'm like, cool, let's do it, dude. Yeah. Like, let's do it, you know? And one of the things that, just to kind of add on with, yeah. the, the, I, I guess, maybe the suggestions that you're giving to those loved ones of addicts, yeah. one of the things that I say too is like, you're in recovery as well. 100%. Like, I tell my wife all the time, like, you're in recovery as well. Like, I want you to validate your experience as well. Just because you weren't the one doing the drugs doesn't mean drugs weren't ruining your life. 100%. Right? Like, speak with... The way I have to talk some people who've done the same things that I do and heal the same way that I heal and have gone to, you know, share similar experience like you and I do, I really, really recommend people to go and speak with other family members of addicts and get that healing together. The same way that we work a program, 
yo, there's stuff out for you too. Al-Anon, Naranon, like, yeah. go check that stuff out, man. Go get connected with people who know what it's like. And I always say, like, I'm down to listen to a prisoner of war. I'll be a shoulder. I can't relate to you, right? I don't know what that's like, and I'm not going to insult you and pretend I know what that's like. Yep. Right? Same thing, man. Like, find someone who's been through that and heal together. Yeah, I love that. I love that. Um, it's crazy to think an hour's gone by. Um, so closing message. I always, I always like to ask a guest, like, what's a closing message um, that you tell people? Dude, it's so cliche and simple, but it's fucking possible. Yeah. Legitimately, it is possible. You know, again, I truly felt the only way out was to end my life. I have found a camaraderie and a brotherhood in recovery that I've never experienced in my entire life. And that's no disrespect to any prior friends to recovery, but this is more intimate. Mm-hmm. You and I haven't known each other very long. Right. We've already been able to have intimate conversations, 100%. right? Because we understand there's a common understanding and a yep. common respect for what one another's gone through. I believe. Yep. Right. hundred percent. I met these guys at a meeting, you know, and, but we took it beyond that. We said, you know what, dude, like you guys are all like pretty serious about staying sober, right? Cool. Let's recover together. The same way I'm telling those family members, Hey man, I really suggest you find someone and heal together. I heal with my boys, right? Like I recover with my guys. Right. And I have my support system in place. Yep. Right. It's possible. I was miserable and exhausted two years ago. Today I have a feeling a fulfilling life with family, with friends, with, you know, stuff that I genuinely enjoy. Yes. I work and real estate's the way I pay the bills, but like, this is my job. Like yep. this is purpose, right? You say like your job, reading news, you love it, right? Yeah, you it's love passion. journalism. It's a passion, it's but passion. it's not your purpose, right? It's not right? my purpose. Absolutely, man. This has given me purpose. Speaking with kids has given me purpose. Speaking with you gives me purpose. Like it's just possible. So anybody feeling like it's just not possible, like that's just not true. Yeah. That's not true. And that voice needs to shut the fuck up. Yeah. Well, th- I always say that that's just the devil trying to keep you straight to, up, dude. trying to keep you to keep using, you know, and telling you you're not good enough. You don't value yourself enough and all right. that stuff. But yeah, I, I love that closing message. It is important to find your tribe and it's important to find a community of people. Um, you know, when I 95% of the people in my life act now, now mind you, I've got some time. So right. 95% of the people in my life today are not sober, but they're not alcoholics and they're not drug addicts. Right. Right. what we call normies and um you know but they're my family you know and that's like, okay and that's okay and we can choose our family so i always you know what i always tell people your closing message message is this don't ever compare traumas to somebody else because what is traumatic to you may not be traumatic totally. to somebody else but don't minimize your trauma totally because a right. lot of people will try to minimize their 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 own traumas say like well it's not that bad um but i just want you to know like they have an amazing podcast. So while you're listening to mine, if I don't do mine as frequently as I wish I could, because I'm doing other things with life right now, which is amazing. Um, listen to their podcast. It's the not so anonymous podcast. It's all over Instagram. Um, you can follow it there. They do testimonial Tuesdays, which is actually really cool. I, I, I had, um, a chance to be on one on Tuesdays and it's on Instagram live, which is really cool. But then they also have their podcast where you can go back and listen to all their recordings. So again, the not so anonymous podcast, Dylan, thank you so much, man, for coming on. It's been an honor, Brandon. Yeah, you rock. And I'm so glad that our higher powers have connected Hell us, yeah, have connected us. For um, sure, bro. So uh, thank you for listening and we'll see you back here for the next episode.